Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Well, hey, everyone. I am here at the OpenAI offices, and I am with Jonas Schneider. Jonas is a member of technical staff here, as well as being the technical team lead for robotics. Welcome to the podcast, Jonas. Hey, glad to be here. It's great to have you on the show. Why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in artificial intelligence? Yeah, so, so my background is actually, so I work on OpenAI's robotics team, but my background is actually in software engineering. Okay. My background is neither in robotics, like classical, like academic robotics, uh-huh. nor machine learning, which okay. is, of course, like OpenAI's big focus. Right. And so in the, in the, in the robotics team, we kind of have a couple of, of different skill sets coming together. There's roboticists, there's, of course, machine learning experts, and also software engineering people like me. So before OpenAI, I was actually a um, software engineering intern at Stripe. That's also where I met our CTO, Greg Brockman, who is now okay. CTO at OpenAI. Nice. And so basically, yeah, and so, so, so that was actually like while I was still in college. And so after I was done with college, I, was, I actually reached out to Greg and was like, so what's up these days? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of stuff are you working on? And so he introduced me to, to OpenAI. Fantastic. Um, yeah, and so I actually, I actually got started working on, on OpenAI Gym. So that was kind of like my, I was a contractor for OpenAI there, basically okay. working with Greg. And so that's, that's how I kind of got started thinking about all these. AI, ML things. And then eventually I got started working on OpenAI's robotics team. Awesome, awesome. So tell me a little bit about the work that you do on the robotics team. Yeah, so the, the goal of the robotics team basically is to, is to enable new capabilities for robots. Mm-hmm. So today's robots, they, they're really good at like very specific tasks. For example, like in a factory robot, you have an assembly line and you have a robot that can place one very specific screw into one specific location on the part that right. you're assembling, for example. And robots are great at that. They're they're really good at that. They can they have very very high precision. They can like they can they can repeat this movement like tens of thousands of times, and yep. they yeah and they, they they never get tired or anything. But the issue is that these environments are very constrained, of course, because like mm-hmm. that's how a factory is. Like everything is super precise. And whenever something like unexpected happens, you just abort, right? Basically. <laughs> and you like and then the human goes in there and like figures it out and like resets and then it goes on again, right? But so that's very different from, for example, like a home environment where like if you're trying to clean up someone's apartment, for example, where like unexpected stuff happens all the time and you like something like falls over and then you have to like react to that and pick it back up, for yeah. example. So this is like a very simple task. But it turns out that like today's robots are, are actually not that great at, at operating these unconstrained environments. Mm. And usually the reason for that is, is that they are, they are pre-programmed basically. So when you, when you, when you have this factory setting, Someone, like when you set up the robot initially, someone goes in there and like, and basically like programs this exact movement pattern for the robot. But of course, in, and that works great in this constrained environment, but in the unconstrained environment, you actually can't really do that yeah. because you have to react to what, what's happening in the environment. And so that's why today's robots are like, are like pretty restricted in these kinds of environments. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're trying to and working on solving that. Nice, nice. So it sounds like the... You know, we're talking about the environments as being constrained and unconstrained, but in a lot of cases, it's my sense that the constraints themselves are artificially imposed. Like the, you know, the factory environment is constrained because it has to be, because that's the way they can get the robots to work. Like, do you look at applying this stuff in the industrial settings as well? Well, so the thing is, like, yeah, you're of course exactly right that basically 
basically today's automation, like basically everything, like the way these factories are designed is exactly so that the robots can function. Right. I think for the most part, it will be, or at least with the current state of, of like capabilities of, of ML-based systems, it will actually be pretty hard to be better than, than this constrained environment if, if basically your, like, your application or your business is like fine with operating in a constrained environment. So for example, like while it might be nice to, let's say there's a Tesla, there's a Tesla like robot that moves the auto bodies around. Right. And then, and, and let's say like, like, of course it would be nice, for example, like if, if it would be smart enough to react to if it like dropped the thing on the floor, if it right. could like pick it back up and just like continue going on. But these events are so rare that, and, and basically, of course, there's like a lot of other just engineering factors there where like you got to be sure that if the robot's in this like reaction mode that it doesn't, doesn't accidentally like, cause like more failures somewhere else in the system. And basically just because these events are so rare in, if your environment is already constrained. So we're like, we're not really looking at that, I guess, like in the in definitely yeah. the short, short or medium term. I'm thinking about applications like pick and place types of applications where I've seen a number of research that's kind of in the context of, you know, today, a robot that's being used to bolt stuff in, right? It's getting these bolts that are like preloaded into, you know, a very con constrained, like a harness that basically it can bolt in, right? But some of the examples show that you, in, in some instances, you might want to just put a box of bolts and let the robot kind of grasp the bolts and, and then from there, bolt them in. And I guess the, the question is, have, have you have you looked at the, you know, is that really practical? Like, is that where you see the application of this kind of stuff? Or it's like, no, the industrial environments, you know, we've got that kind of figured out. People mm -hmm. probably aren't going to, you know, switch from using these, you know, the very rigid environments to the more unstructured environments to save a little bit of that upfront cost. Yeah, so I think there are definitely, there are definitely some opportunities, basically, specifically in the areas you mentioned, like machine tending, basically, yeah. where like, you have this inbound like box of parts and they come from like a like a, some vendor and you basically have to like feed them to the machines correctly and like mm -hmm. unpack them. And that is again because it's kind of an unconstrained environment. You don't really know like they might change like their shipping material and suddenly it looks right. different and you have to process this package differently. Mm -hmm. And also one one other one other other kind of interesting example is actually plugging in cables. So that's something that that all these industrial robots are also very bad at, it turns out, huh. because like cables are deformable. And basically there again, you might have to react like if the cable is bending weirdly, you have to like poke it right. so it falls into the correct place. And so this is actually something that consumes a lot of time in, for example, like auto assembly, where basically you can do the entire frame, it's all, all water size and all super nice. And then you have a bunch of people like installing all the stuff in the interior, for example. And that includes actually like one very specific task that people have tried to automate using like classical robotics. It's plugging in these like connectors basically. Yeah. Or I guess maybe like a like a day to day variant of this would be like plugging in a charger into like plugging your phone in, in into right. like a phone charger. Right. But it turns out basically for these problems you also you you actually like these are surprisingly hard. Yeah. Because you have to like figure out the like exact positioning for the charger and then plug it in correctly. So um, we built USB C and like Lightning, the reversible <laughs> ones, to make yeah, it easier for the robots to charge <laughs> our phones for us. <laughs> yeah. So I th so I think definitely like for the industrial applications like. Uh -huh. It, while it might be hard to basically, in the short term, improve on the stuff that is already handled by robots, there are definitely a lot of fringe cases that, like, there's, there's no, no way that you could currently even, like, get close to automating it, and new technologies could enable that. Okay. So tell me a little bit about some of the areas of research that you're pursuing to kind of enable this, this vision. Yeah. So basically, the, the thing we're very interested in is, is basically acting on 
and reacting on feedback from the real world. So basically this and this kind of feedback is really also what gives what gives humans this super good like manipulation and like super good like robotic skills basically. Okay. So one actually one one quick experiment you can do to verify that is if you try to to if you put both of your index fingers out like horizontally I'm and, doing this now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you try to move them move them together and like, like touch the fingertips. And it's very easy to do and you can always do it. Sure. Yeah, but so, but and now try do, doing it again with your eyes closed, mm-hmm. and it turns out this is actually this is actually really hard. <laughs> huh? Yeah, like after a while, you can like if you have like the touch feedback. Yeah. But basically, so the, the thing there is that like actually human motion is not very precise, but it is very good at like figuring out oh I'm like off in this in some direction so and then correcting for it. Fine feedback and correction exactly. Yeah. And so that is actually a thing that, that, that like, again, these like industrial robots, like they don't really do that on like a higher level. They right. do it on like a very, like a very low level of like, am I in the right place? But this gets harder if you have like other objects or something that you're interacting yeah. with. And so this is what, like, this is one area that our research focuses on basically taking data from the real world and using that like online in the loop to have the robot be able to like react to what it's doing and what like the things it's interacting with. Which could be like a block or like like whatever object that you're working with is doing, and like if you're like grasping it correctly, for example, or if you're moving it to the right place. And so, how do you do that? Yeah, <laughs> that's a very good question. So there, we're we're building on on the on the large body of work that has that has been done in the computer like in the like ML based computer vision areas. So basically, we take we take a convolutional neural network that's been that's been trained on ImageNet to do this like image recognition challenge. Okay. And then we basically slice off the the last layers of that network where it where it does this thing of like classifying an object into categories. Because, learning. Yeah, and so basically the parts we want from that is basically the lower level features of the network, right. like figuring out like where edges are, where like these like small features are, and then we instead train it to predict the state of the world basically. So so we're using this 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 machine learning pipeline basically to to feed it an image from like a normal webcam or something like that that's attached to the robot. And then have have this neural network that uses this image to predict, like where like where am I and where is like what state am I in? What where's the object that I'm interacting with? And then we use that to to correct the movement of the robot. Are we close to doing this? It seems like it would be helpful to do this in three dimensions. Like, are we close to that at all? Or I think so. So maybe not for the general case, but probably if you have like basically something where you where you know at least a little about like what kinds of objects you're dealing with, then then. I don't think anyone has done it yet, but but it's like we think it would probably be be doable. So so the work the, the work that we've done so uh, we use this technique called domain randomization, where we basically so so questions of course how do you train this network? Um, so what I just mentioned earlier with the, like predicting the position mm-hmm. of things, and the way we do it is basically we create chaos in simulation because the problem is if you just feed it images from a simulator, the real world will look different, and then it will just get confused and be like this is weird. Why is there like a pixel in the back that is, that is now yeah. like bright where, where it was like dark always before. And the way we get around that is by basically randomizing everything in the simulator. It, it looks pretty crazy because we basically replace all the textures in this like 3D rendered scene with random textures, <laughs> like random colors, random patterns. It looks, we used to call it the disco <laughs> because, it's just, because it's just random colors everywhere. And basically this, this kind of makes the network robust against like variations in the environment. And so this is actually, and, and, and basically you can measure that, like, if you do this, then, then the real world will look as just, like, another incarnation of, like, of this random, of this random setting, and it will work. And if you don't, it will just be, like, completely off, basically. Okay. Yeah, one of the projects that Peter Abiel is working on is, like, 
tying a knot, using a robot to tie a knot in some string. And there's a, he's got an interesting video about this, but one of the comments in the, in the video or the commentary on the, on the page is like, you know, it works great if the rope is on a green table, but it totally fails if the rope is on a red table or if the rope is like striped or something like that. It sounds like this domain randomization is, you know, trying to solve for that same kind of problem. Right. Yep. Yeah. Totally. I think so. So for the for the like rope, like for the rope stuff specifically. Yeah. So the, the the reason why like why people do this at all is is because a rope like, like similar to the to the phone charger or like the phone connector right. is that because a rope is flexible. Like it's yeah. not like just like a like a block or something. And basically, to tie a rope, you have to like either you have to have some like some internal model of like how is it going to bend if I like if yeah. I, like turn it this way. So I guess people just like work on this. In like a decoupled way, like decoupled from the like perception way, but this is very plausible for you like put these put these two results together to create something that can tie knots in in, in, in arbitrary colored environments. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now the other thing that it makes me think of is is Apple's recent CVPR paper where they use GAN approach to take simulated images like from a video game engine and kind of make them look like real images so that they would perform better in the real world, like. Your ultimate goal is to have this robot perform well in the real world. You are trying to trying to avoid overfitting by kind of doing, you know, randomization of your backgrounds and, you know, funky colors and all that kind of stuff. But do you still then have the problem of, hey, this doesn't look like the real world? And like how do you approach that? This is actually a very interesting, like high level questions that like that like I don't think there's a definitive answer to. It's basically the question of like, do you Basically, should you invest time in making your simulations like super nice and photorealistic, basically, to have like special rendering artifacts of like light reflections and, and basically just make your make your environment make your simulation be almost indistinguishable from the real world, or whether you can actually get away with having really lacking simulation, basically, that is like very rudimentary, just has like like geometry and like edges and a couple of like 3D lights, and then you can use like neural network regularization techniques. To basically use that to make the network robust against it, um, and more generally, in the case of of your research, you know what using the domain randomization, like what kind of performance have you seen in the real world, and have you explored ways to enhance real world performance beyond the domain? Are there specifics to the simulation environment that? Cause your training to kind of overfit on simulated looking images. Yeah, yeah. So, like, like I remember that when we were initially doing this domain randomization work. So, so the the setting that we did there was we basically had a table of like different colored like wooden blocks, and then we had the robot. Basically, you could give it commands of something like stack the green block on top of the blue block, and then okay. it would like like basically correctly localize these blocks. And this was with a, with an accuracy of I believe a couple of millimeters. So it was pretty decent for like given that this was really like. A, just a normal like HD webcam, like basically nothing, mm-hmm. basically nothing that's like super specialized robotics equipment. But I actually remember that that in, initially, sometimes it was just failing randomly, and we, we didn't really know why. Okay. And then it turned out that if there was someone standing in the background, <laughs> then uh, like <laughs> casting a shadow or something like that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or just having like a like a leg or like like a foot in the in the oh, image wow. that threw it off. And 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 that that is actually basically like these kind of kind of things encourage us to. Just make the simulation crazier, basically, yeah. and and then if you have this these random distractors appear in the background in, during the training as well, then it will actually be again robust to that. 
And so how did you characterize the performance gains, you know, after using the, the domain randomization? The way we measured it actually is we just had like a like an actual like object tracking system and just measured the the, the error from that. But of course it's also just reflected in the like success rate of like how often could you like stack the correct block like on top of the other one. And basically if it didn't do the domain randomization, it would just like hit run into the table or something. Okay. So it was like it was like very, very, very off. And basically, so we, your performance metric was bad versus good. <laughs> yeah, sort of, sort of. Yeah, That's so, fair so, enough. <laughs> yeah, so, so like basically, what we did initially when we did were doing the domain randomization is we actually one of our researchers, Josh, spent spent a very long time <laughs> basically just moving around pieces in the real world and like adjusting the like camera position and, yeah. and basically just fine tuning it so it would be like just right. And then it would like appear to work, but then as soon as you uh, basically like it, 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 you could see that it wasn't really working. Like it was only working if you like basically like manually overfitted to yeah. like one one very specific instance. But basically, that the, the main randomization helped like help with that. Okay. And so, did you build a custom simulator to do this, or did you use some off-the-shelf thing? Yeah. So pretty much all of all of what we do these days is in is running in Mojoko. Okay, Mojoko. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so tell me about that. Yeah. So so um, Mujoko is this physics simulator de- developed by University of Washington professor Emma Todorov. Okay. And it's pretty much the I would say the standard in um, in basically these like kind of like robotics and like robotics related tasks. It's also used for all the physics related environments in in OpenAI gym. And so basically, if you've ever seen the like yellow like humanoid humanoid yeah. walking around that's that's mojoko okay. <laughs> and basically having these like capsule geometries and the good thing about mojoko as, as opposed to like of course there are many other physics engines like mm-hmm. game physics engines right. there's nvidia physics right there's a bunch of yeah it's like from like unreal engine they all bring their own, their own nvidia announced some new simulation engine at the last gtc i forget was da vinci it, or was, some kind of name thing flex flex yeah. i don't Nvidia has a whole bunch of them yeah. because they really like making <laughs> making beautiful things. So the thing that game engines do for the most part is they are often not super concerned about accuracy or physical okay. realism, which is totally fine. They they just they're just working working on making something that that, that looks great and is performant too. And Mojoko kind of comes from a different perspective there, where, where it comes from like robotics people basically, okay. and they and they are using this for like optimal control, which is kind of the analytical way of like how do you control a system to achieve a given task mm-hmm. and it has pretty good features for accurately describing an actual physical robot like it can do things like friction and like tendon based so like where you pull on cables to move the robot around okay it has a bunch of these things that like you could you could implement them like on top of the game engines for the most mm-hmm. part but they just don't come with it and also Mojoko is just like engineering wise. It's pretty practical. It's just like a library that you link against and then you can you can just use it. Link against so it's like C or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So so like it's not open source, it's commercial, unfortunately. So so it seems like a lot of the popular simulators are like is there a dominant open source simulator? Yeah, there's Bullet. I think Bullet Bullet, uh, Bullet is pretty popular and we've actually been looking at it, like maybe switching to that. Just because it's yeah, like, but, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much it because it, because it's just yeah, just like on like a day to day, it's just very convenient to be like, what is happening? This is weird. Let me just yeah. dive into the code and see what's yeah. going on. But also, I would think to make it easier for other people to replicate your results and to you know try to build on the kinds of things that you're yeah, doing. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to say, well, you have to first go get a license and yeah. So 
I believe they do have like pretty favorable agreements, at least for at least for students. So I think as a student, you can get it for free. Okay. Um, yeah, but so like the good thing about Mojoko is that is basically that it, that it's like while it's kind of like a walled garden. Yeah, it, it's a pretty nice walled garden, and it yeah, and, and things yeah. And, and Said every walled garden maker. <laughs> well, we're not talking about, we're not garden makers. So. No, I'm I'm putting the words in Madroco's mouth. That's true. That's right. true. Um, the one thing where we've, where we've actually been eyeing some of the game engine physics simulators as well is actually exactly like dealing with these deformable objects, like the cable or the rope or liquids, even like stuff like that. That is something that that Mojoko can't really deal with because it's entirely like a rigid body simulator. And it basically, like, its performance scales with the... Um, but basically, like, it, it gets slow very quickly if you have a bunch of things, like, moving around. Okay. <laughs> basically, like, of course, the scale of things doesn't matter at all because it's just, like, meshes and just numbers. But if you have, like... if Let's say if you had, like, a like a bowl of full of, like, a thousand pearls or something, that would be... It would be pretty pretty gnarly in Mujoko, probably. Yeah. We haven't tried it, but we have tried, like, I believe you've basically tried to do, like, a Jenga, kind of like a Jenga-like yeah. setup, and it was yeah. just, like, jiggle around and then eventually, like, kind of explode or just, or just fall apart. <laughs> yeah, so, I, like, I think there's, like, a limit of, like, maybe, like, a couple hundred of, opt- like, of basically of, like, rigid individual bodies flying around. Or not flying around, but moving around. <laughs> Is that rigid body simulation something that lends itself to distributed compute, or does that not work so well? Or does it just Madroko not support that? That's a good question. So I think the I believe I believe the the, the creators of Madroko have tried to basically run it under OpenCL, so to like a GPU accelerated. Mm-hmm. But I think the the main problem with that is they're actually it's very similar from the computer computation you would you would run for for running a neural network where it's basically just like a bunch of just a bunch of like matrix multipliers or like related yeah. related things. But for the physics simulation, you actually have a lot of branching. Because you run like a collision detection system and then you do something that's like, if there's a collision, then do these things. Mm-hmm. And you do that for like all the collisions in the scene or something like that. Okay. And that is something that like, at least like today's GPUs, I can't deal super well with that. Okay. So I think actually in the, this was like a long time ago, but I think NVIDIA, they used to sell something like a physics processing unit, a PPU. Actually, I'm, I'm not sure if it was NVIDIA, but like some, like some, some vendor. And they basically tried to make it like, a, like an established like hardware accelerated physics. This was like marketed to gamers, I believe. I don't think I don't think it, it ever really took off because eventually people realized actually CPUs are pretty good. <laughs> CPUs are pretty decent, and especially with like with like today's where you have a bunch of cores and you can just have a physics core and you and at least in the like game setting it just works pretty well. That being said, basically today or like at least the way Mojoko does it, it's it's just a single thread CPU processing. Okay. It's 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 pretty fast, but I think you'd probably be hard pressed to distribute that specific architecture. Actually, probably some of the other like basically, if you if you had something like a like some of the game engine simulators are particle based. So, for example, Nvidia's Flex, and basically they don't represent bodies as like a, a, like a rigid mesh. Yeah, it, it's basically it's literally just like just like a bunch of particles that have some like basically some like stickiness where they stick to each other applied. And I believe there have been some attempts at like distributing that, where basically you have like cells of the world and every like every node basically computes all the particles that are like in this specific cell and then they like hand off hand it off to some other node okay but we're not using that okay today interesting interesting so we're talking about simulation and tell me a little bit about the i guess the process for you know the relationship between your training data and your simulator and like how you load all that up and like how you build the simulation and you know are there, are there things that you've learned about integrating simulation into AI training pipeline that are maybe 
you know, not intuitive or, you know, maybe, you know, simulators weren't really designed to do this. And so it was kind of hard, but we figured out how to do X, Y, Z. Yeah. So I would say for the, for the simulation, and, and this is actually kind of following the, like, the, like what we're just talking about with the distributed aspect of it. One reason why we're not like pushing, pushing that super hard is because we actually can just horizontally scale it. So actually the way we, we basically do our training, which is basically running a lot of simulators. So you can, you can distribute it in, in this way. It's just that the simulators are all independent of each other. Like they, they, they all simulate the same, like the whole scene, but they all have like different, like they all basically run like different, like they all run the same scene or some ran, randomized version of it, but they, they basically, Basically, instead of like serializing all the attempts, we just parallelize like 10 or actually more like a thousand of them. So the way we actually run our training is we have like one box that actually does the like TensorFlow, like, like like computation for actually training the network and like taking in yeah. the data. And then we have a bunch of like worker or like evaluator machines that basically that basically like take in the current best guess for like for the for the policy, which is like our trained neural network. And then they basically roll that out in a simulator, which basically just means they run it over and over again. And so this happens on like hundreds or thousands of machines like in, in parallel. And, but they don't really talk to each other. Like they just do this on their own. And then they actually send this experience back to the, to the optimizer node. And that's basically where we, where we crunch the numbers to, to actually improve the policy. The policy. So you, you generate a policy, generate a network, you push it out to a bunch of different nodes in parallel. Like what's what's the input to those nodes? Are you giving each of those nodes specific input, or are they just kind of running things in random and you know computing a function or something like that across a, a random distribution? Yeah. So so the worker nodes they basically receive they receive the parameters for the policy, and there's like some shared configuration for like what's the kind of scene are we running? Like what's the robot and like where like where are the objects that we're interacting with? Like what's their uh, what's their initial positions? There are actually a couple different ways of of how to communicate the results back to this like central like mastermind machine. Mm-hmm. So one way is if you actually have the workers do the do the gradient computation. So they basically they roll out the physics simulators and then they figure out some kind of reward or cost function for this. And like, was this a good rollout? Like, did we end up in a good state where like, for example, when you're moving these blocks around, like, did, did the right block end up on top of the other right block? And then the workers figure out, okay, if if my parameters were like tweaked slightly differently. I would have gotten a better outcome this time. Yeah. And then the other the other approach is to is to just send over the raw like what happened in simulation to the to this optimizer machine and then let let the the optimizer figure out what the what the parameters should be and like how we should change them. Okay. And which do you tend to do? Do you do both or Yeah, so right now we do the we do the sending over the experience or the latter thing, which is just because it's simpler for the most part because right. then the basically the workers are kind of dumb and they don't need to worry about that much. But there are situations where this can actually be problematic, especially if your like if your observations are big. For example, if your like if your observation, which is like what your what your policy or your agent is is using to make a decision for what to do next, that is something big like an image from a simulated camera. Then you don't want to send that over the network just because there are so many of them and just clogs up the entire bandwidth. That's where we we'll probably look into the into switching to the sending over the gradients over the network over over the next few months. Especially as we move to these more like high dimensional observations, and is the the infrastructure that you're doing all this with like is this all handcrafted stuff or like I had a conversation with Ian Stoika about Ray the other day like mm-hmm. are you using something like Ray to do this? So we're actually using Kubernetes. Yeah, so so we I believe we had a we did like an infrastructure blog post about this a couple months back. But basically, we run 
we run lots of Kubernetes clusters okay. across all of the major clouds as well. Like we're running on we're running on Azure, we're running on AWS. Okay. We also have some stuff running on Google. So yeah, there's a there's a there's a lot of compute. The way you actually implement this using these tools is actually somewhat simple. You you basically just tell tell Kubernetes in our case to here's this batch job, run this thing once for the GPU optimizer, and run this thing once for the couple hundred worker machines, and it okay. just kind of goes and does it. But there is like there is a ceiling there where like where you can't just because this is not really the original use case for 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 Kubernetes. I believe the like what they what they recommend as a limit is like not more than say ten thousand nodes, which is which is a lot, of course. Like you, you and have you bumped up against that limit? Yeah. So we have bumped against previous limits where the limit was something like five thousand, and then <clears throat> it won't crash, but it will just yeah. become like more and more unhappy and just stop responding, and like basically things will become weird in the cluster. And how long are these simulation jobs? Are they, you know, they're not like on the order of training jobs that are days and days. They're much shorter. Is that the case here? Uh, yeah. So, so basically, so one specific cycle is much shorter. Like I believe like one specific cycle of basically get the current policy parameters, do a bunch of rollouts, send them back. That's something like maybe like a second. But the way we actually start them is we, we basically just keep, the, keep these like rollout machines around in the same way that we keep the training. So they basically, they're just one like temporary cluster, basically. Okay. And that cluster will stay around for the duration of, of the entire training, which is like maybe like a day or okay. half a day. Hmm. Interesting. And so, you know, all this is to help you develop a kind of a better model via simulation. Like, what do you do when you want to test that in the real world? Ah, yeah. It's, this is uh, this is really interesting. Part part this, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so yeah. So the, the the kind of interesting thing is that a lot of other areas in machine learning they just kind of stop short of that, and they're like, well, this is the model looks looks pretty reasonable, right? So it's fine. We're done here. And so we're we're actually really adamant about like jumping through all the hoops to to actually to actually make it run on the robot. Okay. Because we found that it that it helps like keep keep us honest basically, and it's like. It's very easy to, to be impressed by like cool stuff happening in a simulator, mm-hmm. but usually there's some caveats that make make it harder. For example, like if like some of the like robot meshes like aren't actually like touching each other or something. What's and a robot mesh? So 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 basically that's kind of the just the shape of like some like part of the robot, like a limb of the robot. Okay. And usually, for example, for the for the for when you're determining whether like the robot is pushing something, yeah. you do this like collision test of like is the robot colliding with an object, and if yes, then you push the object away. But the thing is like while like while you have this super nice like visual rendition of the robot with like a nice like it models all the aspects and like screws or something, yeah. Often the the geometry that's actually used for this collision check, which actually determines what's happening in the like physics wise might be like a like a simpler version of this geometry. Like it might just be like a cylinder where the actual robot is something super complex like it with like rounded corners sure, or something sure. like that. So your angles are all off and kind of this yeah, error yeah, just yeah. compounds. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And at the same time like this can also like kind of like trick you into thinking of, thinking that something works <laughs> whereas it, it wouldn't actually work if you tried it in the real world right now. And so the so the way we run we actually run run our policies on the real world. We have developed our the system called robots as a service which basically means that the robot goes onto the network, and then people can like, connect to it and like run like run specific algorithms or like the models that they trained on the robot. And so the the there are some like like specific like technical things that they think is like non trivial because it is like a real time environment, and you can't just basically it's it's much harder than than just simulating like a piece of software like people often do with like Atari games, for example, for training. You have to be careful that you don't miss like a cycle because otherwise. 
your policy will get super confused because your time step will just be longer, for example. So basically, like working on all these artifacts has actually turned this robots as a service system into into a pretty big engineering project here. So the, the example you gave struck me as something that is more of a, a training artifact and training issue as opposed to deploying it to the physical robot. Like how is how does it manifest itself on the physical robot in such a way that you could do something about it there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the specific example of like so in simulation, you would start at like t equals zero. Then you get some like current state. You decide what you want to do, and you set the action. But basically, while you while you're thinking about this, the simulation is stopped. Right? It's paused. So basically, you do this computation. Then you get your output, and then you you advance the simulation by one step, and then you repeat. You you think again, and you step again. In the real world, of course, all of this happens like simultaneously, and you and you don't get the chance to just like pause and think for a while. So you've got inertia and continuous variables and all this stuff that exactly like, exactly. But you raise a very interesting question: like, is it a training problem or an evaluation problem? Mm-hmm. And actually, for most of these things, these things it, it can be both. Like, like uh, uh, sticking with the like timing discrepancy example, yeah. there's basically always like this is pretty much like a decision we have to make for like every every issue similar to this that comes up is like, are we okay with like investing time in in actually like ironing out this issue in in our like in our software stack, or should we just be like, oh well, I mean. If there's some fluctuation in the time step, then we can just train with that and basically just add that to this to the set of things that we randomize in simulation. Right. And basically, there's always a balance a balance of these two choices, like either make the simulation harder or make your your real world system more predictable to execute. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of an, and this is kind of an area where you have to pick your battles to some extent. Right. Because if you like, if you have to, if you just have too many unknowns, then it's while like there's like a th- theoretical, it th- should be theoretically possible for for you to be able to learn a model that can cope with all of these uncertainties. Yeah. It will just be very hard in practice to to debug it and inspect it and see if something goes wrong. And you can't. And then you will basically you will see it break. And then you'll be like, well, so why did it break? And basically, like getting to the bottom of that requires you to exactly do this part where you remove like as many of the unknowns as possible. Mm-hmm. But you're totally right that basically it in the end our policies eventually we want them to be capable of. Basically, you put them on a new robot that is very terribly instrumented or has like really weird software that causes like lags and delays, uh-huh. and just figure it out. I don't think we're there quite yet. Okay, okay. And so you call this robot as a service. Do you have? Is it like on demand? Like you have a, a bank upstairs of like thousands of robots just swinging around, and or do you have you know a, a robot or two connected to the network that folks can like you know there's a a calendar, an outlook, or whatever that they schedule their robot time with. Like, how cloud-like is this? I really wish it would be the former, but but it, but it is in fact closer, closer to the latter. So we actually thought about, and and actually some others. So some folks over at Google, I think this was Sergey Levin. They they actually did this. They bought a bank of robots. They bought I think like around fifty or something like robot arms, right. and just had them do these like grasping grasping tasks yeah. over and over. Uh, we thought about doing that too, but at least with the current setup, it's it's it's, it's exactly that. Like we have okay. to fetch, we have a couple, we have, we have a couple of other like robot arms, and these are like individually connected to the network. And we usually do the scheduling by like whoever is around the, the robot at the time. Um, <laughs> so scheduling by proximity. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. The main reason why we actually need like a specific system for like accessing the robots there is that so these robots all come with software, right? They right. come with some kind of software. They come with either like. They come either with some integration for ROS, which is the, the robot operating system, which is a big open source effort to to provide like a like a very like unified framework for You're not up at ROSCon? That's um, going on now, I think. Or oh, is it going week? on right now? In Vancouver. 
Oh, yeah. great. Well, shout out to Ross Khan. Um, <laughs> so we're actually not using Ross. <laughs> oh, no, that, that um, explains it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so we found that like Ross is actually really great if you if what you have is you have a robot and then you have a bunch of like other things around it that you want that, that uh-huh. you want to use. For example, you have your robot arm and then you might have like some like like a light right, like a bunch a of modules sensor. And yeah exactly it's exactly. very it has, sensible it has so many yeah and, and and you have and you have like tracking cameras or you have like maybe you have like one one robot that is your arm and then one robot that is your gripper and they need to be independently controlled or something right. like that and we found that that is that's it's really great that like all these things already ship with with ship with drivers for us and you can just yeah. plug them plug them together and they will and they will just work pretty much out of the box I think for us, it 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 kind of comes back to the the, the issue we, we we talked about before this, where where there are just timing uncertainties basically, and you don't really know what's what's going on inside the system. For example, if you had this this case where you have a robot and you have some external sensor, and in ROS they would just appear as like here's a robot, here's a sensor, great, you're you're all set. But actually, there might be like subtle things there where, for example, the timing updates for both of these systems might be out of phase, where mm-hmm. like. The robot updates, and then there's delay, and then the sensor updates, and then then you will have like a timing lag there. And while this wouldn't matter in like for a lot of the like like classical applications where you do something where like you collect data over ten seconds or something, and you're, you're basically doing this in a very slow way, and then then you don't really care about what 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 this, these like tiny differences. It causes problems for our case where we basically we try to instantly react to like if something changes in the, in the environment. You it might be like tens of milliseconds before we feed this back into like into the policy to to like correct correct for that, and so this is why we actually have to be like super careful about like what are the exact timing like timing phases of all these sensors, and so so we found that that a lot of the a lot of the ROS abstractions are actually they kind of encapsulate this and hide it from yeah. you, which is actually great I think for the majority of use cases. It just doesn't work that well for us where we actually do need full control over these things. Okay. So do you did you write your own operating system or is it more like a, less like an operating system more like a thin layer that you know I'm I'm assuming that at the bottom of this it's all kind of just you're controlling stepper motors and stuff like that through IO ports and you know there's got to be some kind of you you want some kind of software mm-hmm. layer there to make that a little easier did you just roll that your own, yourself Exactly so it's pretty much like a layer of middleware basically so we didn't we didn't really write write our own OS or something Right so for some of our robots we actually we basically get rid of all the software that they ship with, yeah, and just basically like if there's some firmware on like some embedded microcontrollers on the robot, then we'll we usually won't touch that because that that and that will because that will also usually be fast and predictable right. and like well defined, yeah. But so uh, the issue with the with the off the shelf option was like code path lengths are you know you know variable because they're accounting for plugging in like external modules and all that kind of stuff. Is it that? Well, or? yeah. So. There's definitely a lot of complexity in that, like, like this, like they basically have this this entire framework for being like plug and play. But yeah. but like they're actually also like real operational issues where like for example like this the the timing issue I just mentioned like wouldn't yeah. be because they like it's not that crazy basically that we have to like make sure that our code has like constant execution time or something. Yeah. It's just you have to like for example like usually these like systems have some some kind of trigger signal. Okay. And you have to you basically just have to to lay your code out in a way that like. Now my cycle starts. You trigger all the systems, basically you synchronize all of them, and then you like read out all the data, or something like that. And that's how you synchronize synchronize all these things. So it's not so much like really like dark magic of like performance yeah. optimization. Okay. It's basically for the most part we just have like a very specific usage usage pattern that 
requires like carefully thinking about like basically when like when when do we do what and so pulling this all together you're trying to to develop a technique that allows the robot to you know be more like the human and can kind of do you know fine tune course correction you know as it's operating and you train all these models in simulation like how do you then use that with the robots and do you know, do the inference to make those course corrections. Like, how how does all that part work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so basically, right now, what we're like, what we're still like aiming for is that we actually don't do any don't do any fine tuning, basically, of our model in the real world. So, so we train our model in simulation, and then we we basically just roll it out on the real robot. Like, like you, you gather all your sensor data, like from the robot and from your like internal, uh, from your external like cameras and tracking systems and stuff okay. like that. And you feed that into the policy, you do the inference, and then you react to that. And so the basically the adaptation loop for like figuring out like differences between the the, the real world and the simulator right now is actually like uh, at least for us, it's pretty much manual still. So there are lots of like there are lots of ideas for for basically doing this kind of like meta learning where you learn to learn to adapt to a new environment. And we've had some initial success with that for basically imitating a human doing some behavior, and then you would you would figure out. It's like, oh, what are these? What are the semantics that the human intended to achieve with the, with this task? I think this is probably like a, like, like more like a, more like a general statement. This like this stuff is still pretty early, both in the in the robotics <laughs> and the like ML communities. Yeah. But it is super interesting, and and eventually we'll want to do something where like we have a bunch of the different simulators we talked about. Might even have like different kinds of robots, and basically just increasing the like breadth of this distribution so you encapsulate like more and more. Things and and really hope that your that your policy gets to the like gets to the bottom of like ah I see this is how I learned to like control a new robot robot in an entirely new environment okay so this is something we're we're super excited about and eventually we're hoping that like this will enable a robot that can that can truly solve a variety of like very complex tasks on a variety of different robot platforms okay and so if I wanted to learn more about this, dig into the details, like see it in action, like have you published code on this or like you know what is what would be required for someone to kind of, you know, play with this and try to replicate what you did? Yeah, so we did a pretty big release a couple of months ago where we basically put some of the things we talked about together like the, the domain randomization part okay. and the part where you where you observe a human and figure out okay, I want to to do like this specific task, and like the robot imitates this in like a new setting. We have a release there where we basically show like like show how it works, and, like show how how the networks are aligned, and like how they like basically how we feed the data from one to the other, and how they're trained. Okay. And we'll probably be be publishing at least parts of this robots as a service layer that, that that I just talked about together with like our next set of research results there. Like we figured it doesn't really make sense for them to just be like kind of on their own because then you. There's a lot of moving parts, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so the, the the issue there is that like even if you open source the code, then it's like, well, great, you can get started today. Just add a really expensive robot to the mix. <laughs> but like we'll definitely be as we publish our research, we want to release like both the research and the infrastructure parts required for it. Okay, cool, awesome. Well, Jonas, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me about this. It's really cool stuff. Awesome. Thank you for having me. For sure. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Jonas or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 76. To follow along with our OpenAI series, visit twimlai.com slash openai. 
Of course, you can send along your feedback or questions via Twitter to at TwimmelAI or at Sam Charrington or leave a comment right on the show notes page. Thanks once again to NVIDIA for their support of this series. To learn more about what they're doing at NIPS, visit TwimmelAI.com NVIDIA. And of course, thanks once again to you for listening and catch you next time.